John Norton, Chapter Two of Celibates by George Moore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by James Carson. In large serpentine curves, the road wound through a wood of small beech trees, so small that in the November dishevelment the plantations were like brushwood, and lying behind the wind-swept opening were gravel walks and the green spaces of the cricket-field, with a solitary divine reading his breviary. The drive turned and turned again in great sloping curves. More divines were passed, and then there came a terrace with a balustrade and a view of the open country. The high red walls of the college faced bleak terraces. A square tower squatted in the middle of the building, and out of it rose the octagon of the bell-tower, and in the tower wall was the great oak door studded with great nails. How Birmingham the whole place does look, thought Mr. Hare, as he laid his hand on an imitation medieval bell-pull. Is Mr. John Norton at home? he asked when the servant came. Will you give him my card and say that I should like to see him? On entering, Mr. Hare found himself in a tiled hall, around which was built a staircase in varnished oak. There was a quadrangle, and from three sides latticed windows looked on greensward. On the fourth there was an open corridor with arches to imitate a cloister. All was strong and barren, and only about the varnished staircase was there any sign of comfort. There the ceiling was panelled in oak and the banisters, the cocoa-nut matting, the bit of stained glass, and the religious prints suggested a mock air of hieratic dignity. And the room Mr. Hare was shown into continued this impression. Cabinets in carved oak harmonized with high-backed chairs glowing with red utric velvet, and a massive table, on which lay a folio edition of St. Augustine's City of God, and the Epistolae Consolatoriae of St. Jerome. The bell continued to clang, and through the latticed windows Mr. Hare watched the divines hurrying along the windy terrace, and the tramp of the boys going to their classrooms could be heard in passages below. Then a young man entered. He was thin, and he was dressed in black. His face was Roman. The profile, especially, was what you might expect to find on a Roman coin, a high nose, a high cheekbone, a strong chin, and a large ear. The eyes were prominent and luminous, and the lower part of the face was expressive of resolution and intelligence, but the temples retreated rapidly to the brown hair which grew luxuriantly on the top of the head. The mouth was large, the lips were thick, dim in color, undefined in shape. The hands were large, powerful, and grasping. They were earthly hands. They were hands that could take and could hold, and their materialism was curiously opposed to the ideality of the eyes, an ideality that touched the confines of frenzy. The shoulders were square and carried well back. The head was round, with close-cut hair. The straight fallen coat was buttoned high, and the fashionable collar, with a black satin cravat, beautifully tied and relieved with a rich pearl pin, set another unexpected detail to an aggregate of apparently irreconcilable characteristics. "'How do you do, my dear Mr. Hare? 
Who would have expected to see you here? I am so glad. These words were spoken frankly and cordially, and there was a note of mundane cheerfulness in the voice which did not quite correspond with the sacerdotal elegance of this young man. Then he added quickly, as if to save himself from asking the reason of this very unexpected visit, "'You'll stay and dine? I'll show you over the college. You have never been here before. Now I come to reckon it up. I find I have not seen you for nearly five years. It must be nearly that. I missed you the last time you were at Thornby Place, and that was three years ago. Three years! It sounds very shocking, doesn't it, to have a beautiful place in Sussex and not to live there? The conversation paused a moment, and then John said, But you did not travel two hundred miles to see Stanton College. You have, I fear, messages for me from my mother. It is at her request I am here. Quite so. You are here to advise me to return home and accept the marriage state. It is only natural that your mother should wish you to marry. Her determination to get me married is one of the reasons why I am here. My mother will not recognize my right to live my life in my own fashion. When she learns to respect my opinions, I will return home. I wish you would impress that upon her. I wish you would try to get her to understand that. I will tell your mother what you say. It would be well for her to know why you choose to live here. I agree with you that no one but ourselves can determine what duties we should accept. Ah! If you would only explain that to my mother. You have expressed my feelings exactly. I have no pity for those who take up burdens and then say they are not fitted to carry them. And now that a disagreeable matter is settled, come and I will show you over the college. The two men descended the staircase into the long stony corridor. There were pictures along the walls of the corridor, pictures of upturned faces and clasped hands, and these drew words of commiseration for the artistic ignorance of the college authorities from John's lips. And they actually believe that that dreadful monk with the skull is a real Barrera. The chapel is on the right, the refectory on the left. Come, let us see the chapel. I am anxious to hear what you think of my window. It ought to be very handsome. It cost five hundred, did it not? No, not quite so much as that, John answered abruptly, and then, passing through the communion rails, they stood under the multicolored glory of three bishops. Mr. Hare felt that a good deal of rapture was expected of him but in his efforts to praise he felt that he was exposing his ignorance. John called his attention to the transparency of the green-watered skies, and, turning their backs on the bishops, the blue ceiling with the gold stars was declared, all things considered, to be in excellent taste. The benches in the body of the church were for the boys. The carved chairs set along both walls, between the communion rails and the first steps of the altar, were for the divines. The president and vice-president knelt, facing each other. The priests, deacons, and subdeacons followed according to their rank. There were slenderer benches, and these were for the choir, and from the great gold lectern 
the leader conducted the singing. The side altar, with the turkey carpet spread over the steps, was St. George's, and further on, in an addition made lately, there were two more altars dedicated respectively to the Virgin and St. Joseph. The maid-servants kneel in that corner. I have often suggested that they should be moved out of sight. Why would you remove them out of sight? You will not deny their right to hear Mass. Of course not, but it seems to me that they would be better away. They present a temptation where there are a number of young men about. I have noticed that some of the young men look round when the maid-servants come into church. I have overheard remarks, too. I know not what attraction they can find in such ugliness. It is beastly. Maid-servants are not attractive, but if they were princesses you would dislike them equally. The severest moralists are those who have never known the pain of temptation. Perhaps the severest moralists are those who have conquered their temptations. Then you have been tempted. John's face assumed a thoughtful expression, and he said, I'm not going to tell you my inmost soul. This I can say, if I have had temptations, I have conquered them. They have passed away. The conversation paused, and in a silence which was pregnant with suggestion, they went up to the organ loft, and he depreciated the present instrument and enlarged upon some technical details anent the latest modern improvements in keys and stops. He would play his setting of St. Ambrose's hymn, Veni Redemptor Gentium, if Mr. Hare would go to the bellows, and feeling as if he were being turned into ridicule, Mr. Hare took his place at the handle. In the sacristy the consideration of the censers, candlesticks, chalices, and albs took some time, and John was a little aggressive in his explanation of Catholic ceremonial, and its grace and comeliness compared with the stiffness and materialism of the Protestant service. Handsome lads of sixteen were chosen for acolytes. The torch-bearers were selected from the smallest boys. The office of censor was filled by himself, and he was also the chief sacristan, and had charge of the altar-plate and linen and the vestments. In answer to Mr. Hare, who asked him if he did not weary of the narrowness of ecclesiastical life, John said that when the desire of travel came upon him he had to consult no one's taste or convenience but his own, merely to pack his portmanteau. Last year he had been through Russia, and had enjoyed his stay in Constantinople, and while speaking of the mosques he said he had had an ancestor who had fought in the Crusades. Perhaps it was from him he had inherited his love and comprehension of Byzantine art. He did not say so, but it might be so. One of the mysteries of atavism. Who shall say where they end? You would have liked to have fought in the Crusades? Yes, I think I should have made a good knight. The hardships they underwent were no doubt quite extraordinary. But I am strong, my bones are heavy, my chest deep. I can bear a great deal of fatigue. Then, laughing lightly, he said, You can't imagine me as a knight on the way to the grail. Why not? I think you would have acquitted yourself very well. 
the crusades were once as real in life as tennis parties are to-day and i think infinitely more beautiful you would not have fought in the tournaments for a lady-love perhaps not i should have fought for the grail like parsifal i was at bayreuth last year but bayreuth is no longer what it was popular innovations have been introduced into the performances would you believe it the lovely music in the cupola written by wagner for boys voices is now sung by women surely a woman's voice is finer than a boy's it is more powerful of course but it has not the same quality the timber is so much grosser besides women's voices are opposed to the ecclesiastical spirit how closely you do run your hobby no in art i have no prejudices i recognize the beauty of a woman's voice in its proper place in opera it is as inappropriate to have palestrina sung by women as it would be to have brunhilde and isolde sung by boys at least so it seems to me i was at cologne last year that is the only place where you can hear palestrina i was very lucky i heard the great mass the mass of pope marcellus wagner's music in the cupola is very lovely but it does not compare with palestrina from the sacristy they went to the boys library and while affecting to take an interest in the books mr hare continued to encourage john to talk of himself did he never feel lonely no i do not know what it is to feel lonely in the morning i write i ride in the afternoon i read in the evening i read a great deal literature and music but when you go abroad you go alone do you feel no need of a companion do you never make acquaintances when you go abroad people don't interest me i am interested in things much more than in people in pictures in music in sculpture when i'm abroad i like the streets i like to see people moving about i like to watch the spectacle of life but i do not care to make acquaintances as i grow older it seems to me that a process of alienation is going on between me and others they stopped on the landings of the staircases they lingered in the passages and speaking of his admiration of the pagan world john said i knew how to idealize it delighted in the outward form but it raised it invested it with a sense of aloofness you know what i mean he looked inquiringly at mr hare and gesticulating with his fingers said you know what i mean a beyond yes that's the word a beyond there must be a beyond in wagner there is none that is his weakness he is too perfect never since the world began did an artist realize himself so completely he achieved all he desired therefore something is wanting a beyond is wanting i do not say that i have changed my opinion regarding wagner i still admire him but i no longer accept his astonishing ingenuities for inspiration no i am not afraid to say it i bar nearly the whole first act of parsifal for instance gurnemanz's long narrative into which is introduced all the motives of the opera is merely beautiful musical handicraft and i cannot accept handicraft however beautiful for inspiration i rank much higher the entrance of kundry her evocation of arabia that is a real inspiration 
the overpraised choruses are beautiful but again i have to make reservations these choruses are you know divided into three parts the chorus of the knights is ordinary enough the chorus of the young men i like better but i can only give my unqualified admiration to the chorus of the children again the chorus of the young girls in the second act is merely beautiful writing and there is no real inspiration until we get to the great duet between Condry and parsifal the moment Condry calls to parsifal parsifal remain those are the words i think wagner inspiration begins then he is profound then he says interesting things john opened the door of his room in the centre of the floor was an oak table a table made of sharp slabs of oak laid upon a frame that was evidently of ancient design probably early german a great gold screen sheltered a high canonical chair with elaborate carvings and on a reading-stand close by lay the manuscript of a latin poem the parson looked round for a seat but the chairs were like cottage stools on high legs and the angular backs looked terribly knife-like shall i get you a pillow from the next room personally i cannot bear upholstery i cannot conceive anything more hideous than a padded armchair all design is lost in that infamous stuffing stuffing is a vicious excuse for the absence of design if upholstery were forbidden by law to-morrow in ten years we should have a school of design then the necessity of composition would be imperative i dare say there is a good deal in what you say but tell me don't you find these chairs very uncomfortable don't you think that you would find a good comfortable armchair very useful for reading purposes no i should feel far more uncomfortable on a cushion than i do on this bit of hard oak our ancestors had an innate sense of form that we have not look at these chairs nothing can be plainer a cottage stool is hardly more simple and yet they are not offensive to the eye i had them made from a picture by albert durer mr hare smoked in silence uncertain how far john was in earnest how far he was assuming an attitude of mind presently he walked over to the bookcases there were two one was filled with learned-looking volumes bearing the names of latin authors and the parson who prided himself on his latinity was surprised and a little nettled to find so much ignorance proved upon him with tertullian st jerome and st augustine he was acquainted but of lactanitus hibernicus exul angelbert he was obliged to admit he knew nothing even the names were unknown to him in the bookcase on the opposite side of the room there were complete editions of landor and swift then came two large volumes on leonardo da vinci raising his eyes the parson read through the titles browning's works tennyson in a cheap seven and six edition swinburne pater rossetti morris two novels by rhoda broughton dickens thackeray fielding and smollett the complete works of balzac gautier's emo et camais salombo l'assommoir carlyle newman byron shelley 
Keats and the dramatists of the Restoration. At the end of a long silence, Mr. Hare said, glancing once again at the Latin authors, and walking toward the fire, Tell me, John, are those the books you are writing about? Supposing you explain to me, in a few words, the line you are taking. Your mother tells me that you intend to call your book The History of Christian Latin. Yes, I had thought of using that title, but I am afraid it is a little too ambitious. To write the history of a literature extending over at least eight centuries would entail an appalling amount of reading, and besides only a few, say a couple of dozen writers out of some hundreds, are of the slightest literary interest, and very few indeed of any real aesthetic value. Ah, he said, as his eye lighted on a certain name, here is Marbodius, a great poet. How well he introduced women. Listen to this. Femina, dulce malum, pariter favus atque veninum, mele linens gladium cor confudet et sapientum, quis suasit primo vetitum gustare parenti? Femina, quis partem natus vitiare coget? Femina, quis fortem spoliatum carine peremit? Femina, quis justi sacrum caput ense residit? Femina, que matris cumulavit crimine crimen? Incestum gravem graviore cede notavit? Chimeram, cui non immerito fertu data forma triformis, ampar prima leo pars ultima cauda draconis, et medie partes nil sunt nisi fervidus ignis. Well, of course, that quite carries out your views of women, and now tell me what I am to say to your mother. Will you come home for Christmas? I suppose I must. I suppose it would seem unkind if I didn't. I wonder why I dislike the place. I cannot think of it without a revulsion of feeling. I won't argue that point with you, but I think you ought to come home. Why come home? Come home and marry my neighbor's daughter, one of those Austin girls, for instance. Fancy my settling down to live with one them, and undertaking to look after her all my life, walking after her, carrying a parasol and a shawl. Don't you see the ludicrous side? I always see a married man carrying a parasol and a shawl. A parasol and a shawl, the symbols of his office. John laughed loudly. The swinging of a censer and the chanting of Latin responses are equally absurd if... Do you think so? Ritual is surely not the whole of religion. No, but we are speaking of several rituals, and Catholic ritual seems to me more dignified than that of the shawl and parasol. The social life of the nineteenth century, that is to say, drawing-rooms filled with half-dressed women, present no attraction for me. You and my mother think because I do not wish to marry and spend some small part of my time in this college that I intend to become a priest. 
marry and bring up children or enter the church there is nothing between so you say having regard for my catholicism but there is an intermediate state the onlooker however strange it may seem to you i do assure you that no man in the world has less vocation for the priesthood than i i am merely an onlooker the world is my monastery i am an onlooker is not that a very selfish attitude my attitude is this there is a mystery no one denies that an explanation is necessary and i accept the explanation offered by the roman catholic church i obey her in all her instruction for the regulation of life i shirk nothing i omit nothing i allow nothing to come between me and my religion whatever the church says i believe and so all responsibility is removed from me but this is an attitude of mind which you as a protestant cannot sympathize with i know my dear john i know your life is not a dissolute one but your mother is very anxious remember you are the last is there no chance of your ever marrying i fear i am not suited to married life there is a better and a purer life to lead an inner life colored and permeated with feelings and tones that are intensely our own he who may live this life shrinks from any adventitious presence that might jar it maybe it certainly would take too long to discuss i should miss my train but tell me are you coming home for christmas yes yes i have some estate business to see to i shall be home for christmas as for your train we'll find out all about your train presently you must stay to dinner end of john norton chapter two recording by james carson